You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. A reading from St. John, the 12th chapter. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The word of the Lord. We all know Chuck. If it dips down into the 20s, like it will tonight, evidently, and you say, Burr, it's cold. Well, Chuck has worn flip-flops in Minnesota on days twice as cold as this. If you are proud of yourself for running your first 5K, Chuck will talk about how he'll never forget the first of the five marathons that he ran. And if you talk about recovering from COVID, well, Chuck remembers that time that he contracted malaria on a missionary trip to Africa after the church's plane went down and they had to run from lions while rescuing elephants from poachers. You know Chuck, we all do, because he views every conversation as a competition. And embarrassing as it is to admit, at one time or another, we are all Chuck, because nobody wants to title their autobiography, my unexciting, unsuccessful, bore you to tears, G-rated life. We all want a story to tell, we all want a trophy to display, we all want to have a few stories in our back pocket in which we're either the hero or the villain, the victor or the victim. There's a little Chuck who's beating his chest and who's flexing his biceps inside each of our hearts. We all want at least one chapter in our lives to focus on how much we've done, our performance, the season of life in which we experience the greatest growth. And this is where things get weird because that chapter, that period in our life is the one that we completely miss. It's glaringly obvious. It's the proverbial elephant in the room. But we go along as if it doesn't exist, and I think, I think I know why. It's because that time, that season in life in which we experienced the greatest growth was when we were utterly dependent on somebody else, when we were living in complete darkness. And even if we wanted to, we couldn't open our mouths to boast. You know what I'm talking about, right? It's the 40 weeks that we spent inside our mother's womb. Think about it. From the moment that our father's seed said hello to our mother's egg, for about the next 280 days, we went from microscopically tiny to a seven, eight, nine pound baby boy or girl. That's exponential growth. That's a remarkable transformation. And it all happened behind the scenes when we were making no contribution when everything was done to us and for us. And it all went down when even we didn't know who we were. My point, 
New life begins in the dark. That's where God has always done his best work on us. It all started in the beginning. In the beginning, the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. So God kicks off his work in this world, his best work in this world, his foundational work in utter darkness. There's chaos, it's kind of an OCD nightmare. There's this vast soupy mess where nothing is organized, nothing is yet in place, nothing is yet the way that God is gonna make it to be. Martin Luther once said, when God starts something, it almost always looks as if nothing will come of it. But that's okay, because that's where God likes to start, at what looks like inevitable failure. Now, I suspect that every one of us knows, in a personal and probably a painful way, how true this is for how God works in our own lives and in the life of the church. And if you don't, well, just wait and see and you'll find out. There will come a time in your life when it feels like everything has been rewound to that second verse of the Bible, where our lives are formless and void and there's darkness over the surface of our hearts. Now, I don't know what did or what will precipitate this for you. For me, it was about a decade and a half ago when I chose the nuclear option and decided I would blow up everything positive in my life. And when the dust settled, I found myself sitting at the corner of Genesis 1 and ultimate despair. For you, maybe it's been divorce or cancer, career collapse or bankruptcy, losing your home to a hurricane or your child to drugs. And I would guess for some of you, it's happening right now. Your life feels so out of control, so jacked up that you don't see any way out. You're not the little engine that could, but you're the train wreck that could not. In fact, you may have gone to bed last night hoping and praying that you wouldn't open your eyes this morning. I've been there. That was my nightly prayer for years because I knew that in the morning when I woke up, the train wreck would still be there. So whatever happened or will happen or is happening right now, what we're left with is more than a mess. Now with enough sweat and know-how and time, we can use to clean up our own messes. But this, what I'm talking about, is, a beyond, is beyond a, a do-it-yourself repair because we can't fix it because we're broken on the inside. And our hearts have been shattered in so many pieces that we're finding shards stuck in our left toe and our ear and evidently in our eyes because they keep on bleeding tears. We're in a place that goes by a lot of different names. Call it what you want. The end of the rope, the wall. It's a deep and a dark and a nasty place, a formless and void place, a place where nothing is as it should be, where there's chaos and confusion and we don't know what in the world is going on. And it's also the place where God rolls up his sleeves, puts on his favorite music, and goes to work on us. Because new life begins in the dark. It's where God starts us on our long journey home. He's always been that way. Remember how it was for the Israelites when they were in Egypt? The angel of death passed through Egypt when? When the clock struck midnight while the people of God were eating the Passover lamb. That night, 
Pharaoh finally cried uncle after his 10 long plague battle with God. He told Moses and Aaron, fine, get out, leave. And they headed to their homeland at night. To get Jacob ready for his homecoming, God rolled in the dirt with him all night long at the Jabbok River. It was a knockdown, drag out wrestling match between heaven and earth, God and man, toe to toe. Only after that fight and only after a name change, only after God dislocated Jacob's hip and made him limp his victory lap, only after all that went down in the darkness was Jacob ready for the homecoming at dawn. Or think about Gideon. When God sent Gideon and his 300 men to battle with the Midianites, they went to battle at night. They were undermanned. They were undergunned. They were armed only with these ridiculous weapons of clay pots and trumpets. And they were inevitably going to fail. They looked like a pottery class that were on their way to band practice. And Gideon, their leader, was shaken in his boots. But it was here, under cover of darkness, their lives completely in the hands of God, surrounded on all sides by this vast army that could squash them like a bug. It was there the Lord gave them victory. Their newfound freedom and redemption happened when they were utterly out of control. And they were in the dark. And with us, it's no different. It's same song, thousandth verse. Our journey home begins in a very unhomely, even anti-homely place. Now, we may feel like God has kicked us to the curb. We may think that we're on heaven's hit list. Or we might just think we're too overwhelmed to know what to think or to feel. We're kind of like mud slathered Jacob there on the banks of the Jabbok River, fighting with someone who doesn't fight fair. Or we're enslaved Israel and we're sitting there flossing mutton from between our teeth, wondering what in the world God is up to on this night in Egypt. Or we're Gideon and his fellow soldiers bringing a knife to a gunfight with this ridiculously, seemingly suicidal battle plan that God has given them. But one thing is for certain. In this dark place, we are not in the driver's seat. We can't get an Uber to get home. We're going to get there God's way. And I tell you, God's way is always a weird, strange way because God writes straight with crooked lines. You see, there's a, there's a very important thing to remember about God's career choice. He's not a mechanic. God is not out to fix the transmission of our souls and to put us back in the hammer lane on our spiritual interstate. It's not a mechanic. Neither is he a personal trainer. He's not out to tighten our spiritual glutes and to rip our religious abs and to make us more Instagram worthy. And God is not a life coach either. He doesn't kind of look at us and gauge our strengths and weaknesses and, and, and show us how to harness the good within us so that we can become even better. Because God's not out to make you good. God is not out to make you moral, and he's certainly not out to make you pretty or rich or successful. Well, if he's not out to do any of that, what in the world is God out to do? Well, first of all, he's out to bury you. God is in the grave business. 
Listen again to these words from Jesus. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth, is buried in the earth, and dies, it remains a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their lives lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. God's like a farmer. My brother-in-law, Scott, is a farmer and rancher in the Texas Panhandle. Now, Scott knows that if he wants a crop of wheat this next year, if he's planning on a good harvest, it's not going to happen if the wheat seed remains in the barn. He's got to get it out of there. He's got to get it out of the barn. He's got to get it out of the light. And what does he have to do? He has to get it out of the safety of the barn and into the soil, the dark soil of the field. So his John Deere tractor is basically a burial tool. He drives it up and down the field, back and forth, pulling the drill, and the drill buries those seeds in the darkness of the dirt because they have to be buried and covered in darkness and dead before they're ready to celebrate their own agricultural Easter. And it's like that with God, the farmer. Our new life, our new life from God begins in the dark. I love the way the psalmist describes it. Light is sown like seed for the righteous. Light is like these seeds that God sows into the soil of the darkness. The light is there. It's there buried. It's hidden. It's in the darkness. And it's just waiting to sprout when God says the word. Our life with God begins when we follow Jesus as his servant. We follow him, that grain of the Father, that seed that came down from heaven. When we follow him from the three hours of darkness on the cross into the darkness of the earth. You see, he has to get us out of our own barns where we're unfruitful and we think we're safe, but we're actually cut off from the life that God wants us to have. He's got to put us in the lightless tomb, the dark tomb, where we die to ourselves. We die to the emptiness of a, of a life that's defined by our will and especially die to our egos. And die finally with Jesus in the darkness. God isn't out to fix us. He's out to co-crucify us with Jesus and co-bury us with him in order that we might be so united with him that we lose our life and find the life that God desires for each of us in the dark in Christ. That's his way of getting us home. In the darkness of death, when we are out of control and we're out of options and we're out of self and we're in Jesus, something strange starts to happen. In that death, all of a sudden, life starts to bloom. The silent heart of Jesus begins to beat once more, as does ours in Christ. The deflated lungs of Jesus begin to rise and fall once more, as do ours in Jesus. The eyes that were, were darkened and dry in death open and they're moist again, as do ours in Christ. And we emerge into life again, into warmth again, into an Easter morning in which angels laugh and saints sing and everything sad comes untrue. He gets us home, and he gets us home 
exclusively in Jesus. He said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. That's you. Now you might say, Chad, there's something you don't know about me. I'm a three-time divorced closet alcoholic more drunk with shame than liquor. Jesus says, it's all right. Die and rise with me, and I'll get you home. You might say, yeah, but most days I believe, but I don't believe. I love God, but, but I don't. I just, I am no good at being a Christian. Jesus says, die and rise with me, and I'll get you home. You might say that I've slept with more people than I can remember. I've done things that make me cringe and just fill me with self-loathing. I'm just basically trash and worthless. Jesus says, die and rise with me, and I'll get you home. You might say, well, I don't know about other people, but I've been a faithful member of this church my whole life. I serve as a lay leader, and I keep my life on the straight and narrow. Well, believe it or not, there's hope even for you. (laughs) Because Jesus says, die and rise with me, and I'll get you home. We get home, we get to God through Christ's Good Friday and Easter, buried and resurrected. Because the way to God is so straight and so narrow that to tell you the truth, there's really only room for one person. And that's Jesus Christ. And we all get there atop his shoulders, part of him. The ride is free for us and all it costs Jesus is everything. But let me tell you, that was a price that he was not only willing, but eager to pay. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It wasn't out of duty. It wasn't out of stubbornness. It wasn't out of some stoic resolve to complete his mission, but it was out of joy, out of the joy of saving you. His joy is your salvation. It's what compelled him to leap down from his father's throne and to spend his own 40 weeks inside his mother's womb. It's what compelled him when he was sparring with the devil in the wilderness. It's what kept him going when he was persecuted, when he was betrayed, when he was taken all the way to the cross, it's it's what drove him, is the joy, the crazy happiness of taking you in his arms and holding you tight and never letting you go. For the joy of making you his child, that he could bury you with himself and raise you with himself to kick death in the teeth. Nothing has made God happier in all eternity than making you his child. So when God starts something, it always seems as if nothing will come of it. When we celebrate Easter in a few weeks, it will always come as a shock because no one expects to visit a cemetery and find God crawling out of the grave, grinning like the cat that ate the canary. But that is what we discover year after year. There is Christ alive again, taking us home. Home to a father who will never stop forgiving. Home to the dove of the Spirit who makes his nest within our hearts. Home to a life that is truly life, where true joys are to be found. In Christ, welcome home. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. 
If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. 